0: go to our Lord in prayer. Our blessed Father, we ask you now as we reopen your Holy Scriptures, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your Word today. Sanctify us, Lord, by the truth of your Word. And very specifically, Father, as we will be looking and gleaning from your word the great truth of our union with Christ. We pray that there will be greater illumination given to each one of us as your people today regarding this most glorious and incomprehensible union that we as the people of God have with Christ Jesus our Lord that we live each and every day in him as he lives in us. These things we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do invite you to take the word of God this morning, and let's turn to Romans chapter 6. As I said last Sunday in regards to where we were in John chapter 8, and because the particular passage that I was expounding from John 8 was where our Lord Jesus makes the great declaration that if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And we, of course, understand that freedom to be freedom from sin. So, as I said, before we got into that sermon, that today I was going to do what the old Puritans would call improving the sermon. So, we're going to continue the theme of the freedom that we have in Christ from sin, but looking at it with more layers as it is unfolded to us here in Romans chapter 6. So Romans chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 1 and simply read to verse 4. 1 through 4 of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word of the living, eternal God. In the opening chapter of his book, Christless Christianity, Michael Horton raised this very provocative question. What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Answering this question, Horton drew from a scenario offered by the famed pastor, Donald Gray Barnhouse, in the mid-20th century. Dr. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over a city... All the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Hmm. In other words, the city Satan would take over would be filled with everything that is morally upstanding and morally appealing to man's flesh just so long as the gospel of Jesus Christ is never heard. Michael Horton responding to this said, it is easy to become distracted from Christ as the only hope for sinners. Where everything is measured by our happiness rather than by God's holiness, the sense of our being sinners becomes secondary if not offensive. If we are good people who have lost our way, but with the proper instructions and motivation can become a better person, we need only a life coach, not a redeemer. What is so tragic and frightening about Horton's observation is that for many pulpits in many churches in America, the pastor has become a life coach whose sermons are nothing more than homespun therapy talks for moralistic do-gooders because What's heard by these life coaches is that the problem with people today is not that they're sinners, but they just need a little help improving their behavior. So, they don't need to be born again. They just need to do more, try harder, and get better because, well, they're already a good person. This message is the deceptive and dangerous message of what is called moralism. Moralism. And it is a message that is subverting the biblical gospel in multiple churches. Writing of this pandemic problem in our present day, Al Mohler said this, Far too many believers and their churches succumb to the logic of moralism and reduce the gospel to a message of moral improvement. In other words, we communicate to lost persons the message that what God desires for them and demands of them is to get their lives straight. Well, with this in mind, I want to turn your attention to the aforementioned Romans chapter 6. This great chapter is part of a much larger discussion that covers four chapters in Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. The discussion at hand or the major theme of these chapters is the believer's certainty and security of final salvation, a theme Paul opens up in chapter 5. But here in chapter 6, the contours of this theme are shaped around the biblical doctrine of the believer's spiritual union with Christ. Yet the way in which Paul enters this doctrine is via a question he anticipated his readers to raise due to the most incredible statement he made pertaining to the grace of God in relation to sin. In Romans 5 and verse 20, Paul wrote that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, according to the context of Romans chapter 5, 12 through 19, no matter how much sin has increased since Adam's fall, it has not and will not ever exceed the grace of God in salvation. This is the principal truth behind Paul's statement in Romans 5 and verse 20. But despite what Paul meant by this statement, he knew from personal experience that it would prove a stumbling block to some of his readers there would be a misunderstanding some Christians would have over this declaration that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the misunderstanding Paul anticipated is where he begins Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, since grace abounds... Where sin increases, then should we not just sin the more if we would have superabundance of grace? This is how certain Christians were actually reasoning what they believed Paul meant when he declared where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In short, they concluded that grace encouraged more sin. So how then did Paul answer this? Or, even more critical, what was not only the response of Christ's apostle, but what was the response the Holy Spirit breathed in the apostle Paul? The divine response gave no quarter. By no means. How can we, or even better and more literally from the Greek, how is it even possible? How can we who died to sin still live in it? There are two things principally we must understand about Paul's answer. First, the reason a Christian cannot go on living in sin is because a Christian has died to sin. Second, what Christians have died to in relation to sin is is the reign of sin as the rule of their life now that they are under grace. So then, the grace of God in salvation has never encouraged a Christian to go on living in sin as a place of permanent residence. Rather, it is the opposite that's true. What God's grace in Christ has done is to liberate us from the enslaving power of sin. As we saw last week in John chapter 8, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. God does not save us to sin, but He saves us from sin. Therefore, if someone claims to be a Christian, or I should say someone who claims to be a Christian, if that person is living their life, with no evident difference from the rest of the world that dwells under sin's power, that is under sin's rule, then we have the authority by God's word to question if that person has ever been saved. Where there is no repentance of sin, no war with sin, no putting sin to death in one's life by the power of the Spirit, where these realities are absent, where they cannot be found at all, then the grace of God and salvation is absent as well. And again, the reason we can make these kind of definitive conclusions is because a Christian is someone who has died to sin. A Christian is someone who has died to sin. They cannot go living in sin because they have been freed from sins enslaving power. But here we must raise a question. Having answered the what of a Christian's death to sin, we now need to answer how we have died to sin and why is this death a permanent death for every believer in Jesus Christ? And answering these questions is what brings us to our study today in Romans 6 verses 3 and 4, which reads, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The central doctrine taught in these two verses, and the fundamental reason behind our death to sin, is that we have been brought into a spiritual union with Jesus Christ. Or, as Paul puts it here, we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, based on the language and the grammar and other comparative passages in Scripture, this baptism is a spiritual baptism whereby we have been placed into the very life of Christ, identified with all that He is, and now participate in the benefits of all that He has accomplished as our Savior and Redeemer. A Christian, therefore... Very simply, is someone who lives in Christ and Christ lives in them. Let me say that again. A Christian is someone who lives in Christ as Christ lives in them. They are in spiritual union with Christ. And thus by this union, Jesus Christ, according to Colossians 3 and verse 4, has become the life, the life of the Christian. Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse 4, he bespeaks of Jesus Christ as our life. Our life. Or take, for instance, Philippians 121. Where Paul says, personally, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live, to live is Christ. How can that be? Why would that be? Because Jesus Christ is your life. He is your life. So this is what it means then to be baptized into Christ Jesus. But establishing what this means raises a question based on our text from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And here's the question. What are the benefits of this baptism? What are the benefits of this baptism? So, reading once again, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What are the benefits of this baptism into Christ? Well, based on what we see here in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4... We have died with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. And we are raised with Christ. Now for the remainder of our study this morning, I want us to consider each of these salvation realities in turn. First, we have died with Christ. We have died with Christ. Paul reports, as a matter of fact because he's using nothing here but indicative moods, stating the reality of the subject, reporting as a matter of fact concerning every Christian, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The Christian's union with Christ is a union with Christ in his death. Now, understand this. When Christ was on the cross 2,000 years ago, we died with Him on Calvary due to our spiritual union with Him. Jesus did not go to the cross for Himself. He went to the cross and laid down His life for His people, for His sheep. So, He was there on Calvary Dying as our substitute, as our representative, hence everything he did at the cross, he achieved and procured for the salvation of his people. It was therefore our sins, our punishment which our sins deserved, our condemnation by God due to our sins and the dominion of sin that held us as captive slaves in our unregenerate state. All of this, Jesus Christ took upon Himself for us. His death was our death to sin because it was our sin with all its consequences that was imputed to Him at the cross as our substitute. Hence, we died with Him since... He died our death. But keeping this fact within the context of Romans 6, the reason we cannot go on living in in sin as Christians is because that life, that life we once lived in sin is a life that was put to death once and for all by Christ at the cross. This is why Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer, he writes, I who live. What is it that no longer lived for Paul? It was his life in sin. It was his life as a sinner in Adam. Paul was now a man in Christ. He was no longer in Adam. He was now in Christ. He was a man in Christ. And by this union with Christ, he was now united with Christ in his death. And that death was Paul's death to his life in sin. I have been crucified with Christ. And the consequence is, it is no longer I the old I in Adam, the old life that was mine in Adam, that life no longer lives. But understand this. What was true for Paul as he testified in Galatians 2.20 is absolutely true for every single Christian. Every Christian. We have died with Christ. And that death with Christ, again, is our death to sin. So that, listen to this, so that when we are born again, one of the initial and supreme benefits of our union with Christ is the death to our old life in sin because that old life under sin's dominion died with Christ by what he took upon himself in our place on the cross. Jesus broke sin's dominion over us by His death on Calvary. And through our union with Him in His death, we are forever free from that old dominion. Forever free. Secondly, we have been buried with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. In the opening words of verse 4, Paul states again as a matter of fact. Again, indicative moods used here. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Not only are we identified with Christ in his death, but Paul intensifies the truth of our union with Christ by showing that even when Jesus went to the grave... We, too, were buried with him. Now, what is so significant about this particular dynamic of our union with Christ? Because, frankly, you don't hear a lot of teaching on this. You don't. James Montgomery Boyce, I believe, has given some of the most helpful words to aid us with a clearer insight as to why it matters, why it matters that we were buried with Christ. I'll quote him in full. He says the reason burial is an important step, even beyond death, is that burial puts the deceased person out of this world permanently. He says a corpse is dead to life. But there's a sense in which it can still be said to be in life as long as it is around. Kind of morbid, but you get his point. When it is buried, when it is placed in the ground and covered with earth, it is removed from the sphere of this life permanently. It is gone. That is why Paul, who wanted to emphasize the finality of our being removed from the rule of sin and death to the rule of Christ, emphasizes burial. He is repeating but also intensifies intensifying what he has already said about our death to sin. You have not only died to it, he says, you have been buried to it. You have been buried to it. Now let's think about this, okay? Think carefully. Our burial with Christ points to the fact that through our regeneration by the Spirit and consequent union with Christ, not only has our old life in sin died, but it has been removed from who we are now as a new creation in Christ. When God saves you, He changes you. He changes you. You are a different person. It's not just that our status with God has changed, which is justification. That's true, necessary, but that's not all. So it's not just that our status has changed, but we have been transformed By God's grace in Christ as a people, listen to me, as a people who once never existed. As a people who once never existed. And all of this hinges on the fact that we are now in union with Christ. And by this union, we have died with Him and we have been buried with Him. Our life... Under the dominion of sin, as slaves to sin's power, that life has died and is buried. It's gone forever. It's gone forever. Now, let me raise a question, which is typically raised as many times as I have preached on Romans 6. Over many years, this is a common question. Okay, so does that mean that a Christian no longer sins? That's a common question. All right, so let me, let me relieve you. No. No. We still sin. We still sin because why? Because of the principle of sin that remains in our members, as Paul demonstrates very clearly in Romans chapter 7. Okay? Okay? But, listen closely, but the difference is this. Sin can no longer rule us as its slaves. No longer. Why do you think the Apostle Paul writes here in Romans 6? Look at verse 12. Well, look at verse 11, then verse 12. Verse verse 11, Romans 6. So you also must consider yourselves... Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon yourselves, count up all the facts I've just given you here, and here's the conclusion. Here's what it all equals. You're dead to sin, you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's who you are. That's what you are. Look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Beloved, if we were still slaves to sin, that imperative would have no meaning to us whatsoever. No meaning. You do not tell a lost person, you do not tell an unregenerate sinner not to let sin reign in their mortal body. It has no meaning to them whatsoever. They're slaves. They're slaves. They live their life under the dominion and rule of sin. This application is not an application they can fulfill. But to the Christian who has died to sin, for the Christian who's in union with Christ and therefore therefore no longer under the dominion and rule and reign of sin, here then is the application. Here is the Christian's response to sin don't let it rule you anymore. Because sin can no longer rule us. No longer, as it's slaves. Sin can no longer master us. can no longer master us, though, let me qualify here, though it can tempt us, irritate us, aggravate us, and ensnare us for a season. But it can no longer reign over us as it once did before God saved us. You're the one who has the power now, not sin. You're the one with the power. You're the one who can say no, according to Titus chapter 2 in verse 12. You're the one who now can say no to all ungodliness and worldly lusts. Why? Because you're no longer a slave to sin. No longer. No longer. As Christians, we are at war with sin, but we are not at peace with sin. This is why in the life of a Christian, there is repentance. There is. Absolutely. There is godly sorrow in the life of a Christian over remaining sin. There is the active pursuit of putting sin to death. No matter how many times you stumble. no matter how many times you go back across the road to that other side, a true Christian won't be there for long because they'll be running back over on the other side where their real home is, their true home is, their true residence. All of this, though, All of this that I'm saying, that I'm explaining to you, that I'm showing you from Scripture is a reality. Why? Because we have died with Christ and we have been buried with Christ. You are not that same old sinner. You are not. Even though the sin that remains in your members in the flesh is trying to tell you differently. And the devil and his minions are going to be trying to tell you differently. And the world, of course, is going to be trying to tell you differently. But God says, oh no, you are different. I've changed you. You're a new creation. You are a new creation. And saying that brings us then to the last great gospel fact of our union with Christ. We have risen with Christ. We have risen with Christ. In the latter half of Romans 6 and verse 4 we read, In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what is the outcome of a life that has died with Christ and has been buried with Him? Well, the outcome is this. It is a life that is raised with Christ now in His resurrection power to walk in what kind of life? Newness of life. Two key terms in this part of our text that we need to underscore. They are the words walk and the word newness. Walk in newness. The word translated walk is the Greek peripatio, peripatio, which carries the idea of conducting one's whole life. This term, therefore, encompasses our life in total. It refers to our drives, affections, thoughts, words, deeds. It is a word that points to the pattern and course of one's life, peripatia. The word translated newness is kairos, which points to a whole new kind of life, a new quality of living. In fact, the idea of the word is, interestingly, strangeness. Strangeness. And thereby it indicates a dramatic change of character That is evident to others. So then putting these two words together in the context of Romans 6. As we have died to sin because of our union with Christ, then the practical outworking of this spiritual transformation will be a new way of life that is manifestly antithetical to our old life in sin. But why is this? Why? It's because of what God has done in Christ for us. It's because we have been brought into a dynamic spiritual union with Christ whereby our lives are so different from what they were that the Bible has to call it a new creation. A new creation. Not only that, but Ephesians 5 and verse 8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Listen to that. Listen to what the text says. Once darkness, once darkness, that's who you were. That's what you were at one time, darkness. But now light in the Lord. But the manifestation of the spiritual reality, listen, it is, it is a way of living that is being progressively set apart to greater holiness in every aspect of our thinking and conversation and conduct. You know, that's called sanctification, right? And that's the new life of every single Christian. That's the new life of every single Christian. A person who claims to be a Christian, but they have no evidence whatsoever, no fruit whatsoever of what I have just described to you from the Word of God, they're not a Christian. I mean, it's really that simple. They're not. So back to our original question. What then are the benefits of our spiritual baptism in Christ? We have died with Christ. We are buried with Christ, and we have been raised with Christ in his resurrection power to walk in newness of life. It is due to these realities of our union with Christ that we have died to sin and can therefore never return to a life of sin since that life is gone forever. As God's word assures us, which I've been quoting from this, but I'm going to quote the entire verse now. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, there's the union. There it is. You do realize, I've said it before, but we'll see if you remember this. You do realize that was the Apostle Paul's favorite phrase, in Christ, in Christo. How many times did he use that phrase? out of all his New Testament epistles, 164 times. 164 times. In Christo. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not understand the Christian life in any other way but in Christ. In Christ. So he says here, if anyone is in Christ... Then what? He's the same old sinner? No. He is a new creation. But then listen to this. What does that mean, Paul? He says, well, I'll tell you. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are different now. You are different. You are changed by the grace of God. And, yes, in the process and progress of sanctification, you're continuing to change. Well, as we close our study of Romans 6, 3, and 4, there is one practical and very timely lesson that I believe we would do well to glean from this passage. And it is, frankly, a lesson in our time our present time, that we must never forget. It's this. I'll repeat it twice. The Christian life is a supernatural life, not a life built on improving one's behavior. Again, the Christian life is a supernatural life, not a life built on improving one's behavior. As I pointed out from the beginning of this sermon, in so many churches far and wide, the gospel has been reduced to nothing more than what is called moralism. The Christian life, therefore, under this guise, has been communicated as a life of simply improving one's behavior. As long as we keep our noses clean don't drink, don't smoke, stay away from R-rated movies and pay our bills on time, then we will have God's acceptance. In other words, moralism takes the supernatural completely out of the Christian life. Completely. It turns the Christian life into a life that requires no grace to live. None whatsoever. But by doing this, what kind of life is it presenting? That is moralism. What kind of life is it presenting? Oh, it's presenting a life that is non-Christian. A life that is non-Christian. However, as we have seen this morning from Romans 6, the true Christian life is not a life man makes for himself, but a life given by God in Jesus Christ. To explain this another way, you cannot explain the Christian life by anything that is earthly because it is a life produced by God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. It is a life, therefore, they can only be in, understood in the terms of the spiritual, in terms of the supernatural, as opposed to the natural, to the fleshly, the carnal. So then a Christian, listen closely, a Christian is not just someone who's been raised right. Now that's, that's good old southern religion. For good old southern boys all going to hell. No. A Christian is a sinner who's been born again and thereby brought into spiritual union with Jesus Christ, out of which they walk in newness of life. In light of this truth, then. We need to ask ourselves some searching questions. I mean, you knew the interrogation had to come at some point, right? Is our life a life that has been transformed by God's grace in Christ? Is our life a life that has has been legitimately a life transformed by God's grace in Christ? Is our life a life lived in Christ? Is our life a life lived in Christ? Have we died to the reign of sin? To the rule, to the power of sin? And are we living now under the reign of grace? Is there a manifest evidence... That we are someone whose life is joined to Christ. That we have died with him. That we have been buried with him. That we have been raised with him to walk in newness of life. Is there fruit that can be legitimately pointed to in our lives to say, yes, that is true. That is true. These are the questions Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, compels us to ask, compels us to search ourselves with. Because to be a Christian is not about having better behavior. Again, that's moralism. It's not about having better behavior, but by becoming, by God's grace, a new creation. Dead, buried, raised in Jesus Christ. Is that who you are? Is that who you are? Because when the Word of God talks about what a Christian is, that's what a Christian is. Dead, buried, raised. In Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And because of that reality, every Christian is no longer a slave to sin. Sin only has the power you give to it. It only has the power you give to it as a Christian. Which is the reason why when we do disobey, we do it by choice. And what does the Lord do? He chastens us. He disciplines us. So no Christian can say, well, I just couldn't help myself. That's just the way I am. Well, you know what? You may not be born again. You can't say that. You cannot say as a Christian, well, I just couldn't help myself. That's just the way I am. Uh, Excuse me. If you're a Christian, you're a new creation. You can't say that. Dead to sin, Alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's who we are as Christians. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is truly amazing. It it is absolutely astonishing, Lord, when we muse and meditate and study in the most careful way what Your Word teaches us and reveals to us concerning the truth of the Christian life, a life lived in Christ. And yet, Father, there are so many of Your dear saints that have never been taught this. They have never been discipled in this way from Your Word to see what is really and truly the most glorious truth and reality, in fact, of the Christian life, that we are in union with Christ. And so, Father, I do pray that here today, among these dear saints, may it please you, Lord God, to take the truth of your word that we have been so privileged to hear and have expounded to us, concerning our union with Christ. May this great gospel reality become more and more real to us, more illuminated to our understanding to where we as your people, Lord, are walking in a greater self-awareness, in a greater conscientiousness that we are men and women in Christ as Christ lives in us. And we thank you, blessed Father, that because of our union with Christ, indeed we have died to the reigning, ruling, enslaving power of sin. We pray, therefore, Lord, that because of this fact and reality, may we give ourselves to living living day in and day out from this position, this position of who we are in Christ as dead to sin and alive to you. These things we earnestly pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen.